it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, February 3rd, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Coming to you from California. Palm Springs area, out in the desert particularly. Very excited to be here for the first time. Cool part of the country, really beautiful topography around here. And a cool spot to be doing the show, especially on a Friday. Happy Friday, one and all. We air, of course, every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's every weekday. If you can't catch us as we air between those hours, we have a podcast for that. It is free. It is on demand every single day when the show is over. Plus, Bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com is our online home. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast available there as well. And all the ways to listen live through the app, through Fox Nation, through the live stream, our great affiliates all across the country, our partners at places like Odyssey.com. You've got options. And then the podcast as well. FoxNewsPodcast.com, another avenue for that, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Lots of bonus content, I would say, there. In addition to radio stuff, sometimes we clip my TV appearances. We'll do polls of the audience from time to time. So shoot us a follow if you're on social media, at Guy Benson Show. I am personally on both of those platforms as well, at Guy P. Benson. Here's what we've got for you on tap today. Congressman James Comer, Republican, Kentucky, he is the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. Boy, is he going to have his hands full for the next couple of years. He will make his debut on this program later this hour. Starting our next hour, Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin is going to be here. He is the incoming chairman of a brand-new committee on countering China, and boy, isn't that appropriate. And isn't the need for getting serious on that subject All the more relevant today and sort of reinforced by the news cycle with this balloon, this Chinese spy balloon that has been confirmed over U.S. airspace now, it seems like for a couple of days, last reported to be over the state of Missouri right now. Pentagon saying earlier that this balloon could be floating over the United States in our airspace for multiple days. So far, no word about trying to bring it down. I want to know if we can capture the thing and study it and see what technology they're using. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer to me. I mean, all sorts of questions about this. The Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, was supposed to be going to Beijing for meetings. That has now been indefinitely postponed because of this provocation. We will ask Congressman Gallagher about all of it coming up at the start of the next hour. In that same hour, the middle hour, Trey Yingst will be joining us from Kiev, Ukraine. He landed a one-on-one interview with the president of Ukraine yesterday. It aired on Special Report. We've got some clips from that and some analysis and reaction from Trey, who conducted the interview. And in our final hour, just after 5 p.m. in the east, just after 2 p.m. here in the west, 
Janice Dean will be our guest talking about the weather, of course, and then all sorts of other nonsense because it's Friday and we love Janice. So that's all coming up on the show today. I want to actually begin by playing some sound that I intended to get to yesterday. If you listen to the show on a regular basis, a daily basis, you might recall our opening monologue yesterday was not exactly planned, but there had been a meltdown on the House floor among squad Democrats as Republicans proceeded to vote Ilhan Omar off of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House. And boy, there were some melodramatic performances, especially from Rashida Tlaib, wailing and shrieking. AOC looked like she was doing some sort of choreographed dance at one point with her arms flailing around. And it was just uh, too rich and the audio too good for me to ignore. Plus the hypocrisy and the double standards just glaring. So I decided to just sink my teeth into that issue to open the show. And I've punted this issue to today, but I want to make sure that we got to it. Matter of fact, the sound bites you're going to hear came from the House Oversight Committee at a hearing just this week. We have the chairman, as I mentioned, coming on later this hour. The topic is the border crisis. And Republicans, quite rightly, having won the majority, are asking some very tough questions about what's happening down at the border. A crisis of epic and historic proportions, a national security crisis, a public safety crisis, a humanitarian crisis, a national sovereignty crisis. It's a complete debacle. December was the highest number ever in terms of encounters at the border. 71,000 known gotaways in the last four months. So the first four months of the new fiscal year, October, November, December, January, combined more than 300,000 known gotaways just during that stretch of time. More than 1.2 million known gotaways on Joe Biden's watch in just two years, less than two years. Right. He's been, I guess, just over now, just over two years. It's outrageous. 1.2 million gotaways on top of the millions who have been captured, processed, and released into the country, many of whom will never show up for court dates. It is unsustainable. The humanitarian side of it has been heartbreaking at times and outrageous. So Republicans are asking questions about it. And what we saw at this committee hearing earlier in the week, it was Wednesday, I believe, was one example after another of a total lack of seriousness from the Democrats on this committee. All they were doing was playing partisan defense for the Biden administration. And I understand sometimes like there's two sides to every story and the Republicans are the prosecutors and the Democrats feel like they've got to defend their guy. But some stuff is just indefensible. And you would think they would at least maybe try to pretend a little bit better that they cared about this giant gaping wound at the southern border, which continues to get worse in different ways. But you would think wrong. One of their partisan guests, right, so one of their witnesses, was an El Paso Democrat, Judge Ricardo Samaniego. And he just said, nope, this isn't happening, and uh, this is all really just racism. Cut 29. There is no invasion of migrants in our community. You know, there are hordes of undocumented immigrants committing crimes against citizens or causing havoc in our community. 
claiming this continues a false racist narrative against this individual to perpetuate violence that the El Paso community is all too familiar with. Ah. Now, we can maybe quibble about the term invasion. In my mind, if you have thousands of people entering the country illegally every single day, that word is not completely out of bounds. In fact, if you look at the clip of illegal immigrants who are known Godaways entering this country over the last four months, it is roughly 2,500, 2,500 Godaways every single day. 2,500 on Monday, 5,000 by Tuesday, 7,500 after Wednesday, 10,000 as of yesterday, 12,500 as of today, and on and on and on it goes. Day after day, week after week, month after month, now year after year. He might call it racist to say there is an invasion. I would point to just the data. If that's too politically incorrect for you, you can put a different spin on it. You can't put a different spin on the actual numbers themselves. And it is not racist. It is not a false racist narrative to notice what's happening. And by the way, I think it's kind of rich that this guy from El Paso saying, oh, there's, there's, no, there's no crisis like this, no invasion in our community, no havoc in our community. There were hundreds and thousands of people sleeping in the streets in the bitter cold. Just down the road, we were talking about a community where the hospital is completely full with illegal immigrants, where local American citizens and legal residents couldn't even go to get certain treatment. They had to drive hours, for example, to, to deliver a baby. So this guy, as a Democratic witness, can show up and be like, oh, no, they're all lying, and this is just a, a big racist false narrative. I mean, I've been down to the border. I can read the statistics. I'm not saying this guy perjured himself, but, boy, this is just absolute hackery. And also, people aren't arguing that a bunch of undocumented immigrants, as he calls them, are walking into the country and immediately committing crimes against citizens. And, you know, getting violent. Now, they are committing a crime with their illegal entry into the country. That's, by definition, illegal. I know the Democrats sort of want to skip right past that one. Also, the Biden administration has, through executive memoranda, now banned the deportation of people, a whole class of illegal immigrants, who are even convicted of additional crimes. See, the, violate, uh, the violation of our sovereignty is crime number one. Then they come in and they can commit. It's like, here's a whole menu of crimes you can commit and be convicted of, and we still won't deport you. They're just pointing out that's, that's the reality. But it's true. The vast majority of these migrants aren't coming to commit crimes or hurt people. Doesn't give them the right to be here. And also, within their ranks of the peaceful people looking for a better life, There are dangerous people, and probably a lot of them within the category of the known gotaways. There was an Iranian national who was captured at the border, actually not by Border Patrol, but deeper into the country by Texas officials. 
The Department of Safety in Texas captured this guy. He was one of four illegal immigrants being smuggled in a car. This is an Iranian national. Initially, they thought he was on the terrorism watch list. Turns out that wasn't him. But clearly, the word is out, even as far-flung places as Iran, Yemen, elsewhere, hey, if you want to get into the United States, go to Mexico, come through the border. Last year, there was a record-setting number of terror watch lists. Potential terrorists, suspected terrorists who were on that watch list, who were apprehended at the southern border. That was 98 people. So far this fiscal year, it's 38 and counting, way outpacing even last year. That's the people that we know of, right? When you see the Border Patrol tweeting about some, you know, convicted rapist or convicted murderer that they caught, these are the people that they catch. How many of these people are embedded among the 2,500 a day coming into the country illegally? And the Democrats just show up at these hearings like they did this week and just inform all of us it's really just a bunch of racism. Jerry Nadler of New York, similar song in some of his remarks at this hearing, cut 30. The first hearing will showcase the racist tendencies of the extreme MAGA Republican wing of the party that seeks to close the border to refugees from places like Cuba and Venezuela. It almost makes me miss their usual obsession with conspiracy theories and the FBI. I mean, so he's, he's snarking. By the way, there are non-conspiracy theories about the FBI some concerns about the way the FBI has conducted its business in recent years, to put it lightly. He says, the hearing will showcase the racist tendencies of the extreme MAGA Republican wing of the party. And then he frames it all as just like, oh, these poor refugees that they want to turn away. It is so much more than that. Most of the refugee status claims are bogus. The vast majority of them are denied. They're given a script by the cartels. I mean, this is like millions and millions of people coming in. It was more than two million last year alone, not counting all the gotaways. It is a huge crisis, and they're treating it like it's some laughing matter that only some weirdo conspiracy racists are worried about. If you listen to this show, I think you can feel confident that I'm telling the truth when I would characterize myself as not among the extreme MAGA Republican wing of the conservative movement. That's not really me. It never has been. I have been on this issue because it is so glaringly important for our national sovereignty, our national safety, and also just basic fairness in law and order. And the ranking member, the Democrat on this committee, is just like, oh, this is just a bunch of kooks. And weirdo racists. That's how they want to frame this whole issue. It's pathetic. And it's just a a total admission that they will never, ever take it seriously. I saw Congressman Ted Lieu of California said, this isn't Biden's border crisis. This has been a crisis for decades. It's been every administration. Except when Trump was president, he was out there tweeting about how it wasn't a crisis. So it wasn't a crisis, and Trump was overreacting, and now, of course, it's a crisis because it's always a crisis. It's not Biden's fault. They just shapeshift shamelessly as the political moment requires. Adam Schiff, who has not been kicked off this committee, they're saving that for the Intelligence Committee, 
I think for for good reason. Now that the Democrats have sort of uh, drawn first blood on that whole battle, right? Since they've cracked that that policy, that precedent, if someone's going to go. I think a guy like Schiff off of intelligence makes sense. But he was showing up at this committee saying, "Oh, this is all about demonizing migrant families and asylum seekers, portraying them as fentanyl traffickers and violent criminals." No, we're saying that migrant families don't have a right to be here. Asylum seekers need to be treated in an orderly way and not incentivized to come here and lie about it, which is happening by the millions. And while not all of these people or most of these people are bringing in drugs or or violence, some of them are. And fentanyl and violence is a problem. They just won't even acknowledge that. It drives me crazy. There was one Republican at the hearing who had heard enough, especially of the racism line. Wait till you hear him go off. We'll play that audio next. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. We were just talking about this, in some ways, farcical hearing, at least from the minority, the Democratic minority, on the border crisis. They were just, you know, racism, racism, racism. Just like yesterday on the Ilhan Omar thing. Like, you know, forget that the other two people getting thrown off a committee are white dudes. This was just a woman of color and therefore it's white supremacy. They all just stampeded to this obviously stupid and untrue talking point. And this is why people don't listen to them when they cry racism. Because they do it always on everything. And Congressman Wesley Hunt, Republican of Texas, had heard enough. Here's what he said, cut 31 during the hearing. And I've been black for a long time, sir, so I, I get it. And, I, and I've been a minority in this country for a very long time. Um, but this is actually not about race. This is actually an issue of public safety. And if I call this, if I call this an invasion, sir, I'm not racist. This administration, a Democrat party, unfortunately, uses race as a scapegoat for everything. And as somebody that wants to make sure that we do attack racist issues when they do occur, we can't be the boy who cried wolf and blame racism all the time. Mm-hmm. And the Democrats say, but this is about race. Everything's about race. Always. People tune out, roll their eyes. Focus on the actual issue here. They don't want to. They can't. So we get this dreck. The chairman of that committee coming up next, James Comer on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Very glad that you're listening. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day. Joining us now is the House Chairman of the Oversight Committee, Republican James Comer of Kentucky. And Congressman, welcome for the first time to the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Great to be here. I want to start by playing a soundbite from earlier. President Biden was asked about inflation. Obviously, inflation remains painfully high, especially in certain categories for Americans, for consumers, for families. And he was asked if he takes any blame whatsoever. His answer was no. And he went further than that. Cut 25. Listen. Take any blame for inflation, Mr. President? Take any blame for inflation? No. Why not? Because it was already there when I got here, man. Remember what the economy was like when I got here? Jobs were hemorrhaging. Inflation was rising. 
We weren't manufacturing a damn thing here. We were in real economic difficulty. That's why I don't. Uh, the Not the majority, but close to 60 percent of jobs lost during the pandemic were already recovered by the time he took office. That was on the upswing, Congressman. Inflation was less than 2 percent when he took office and almost immediately started ticking up because of the policies that they immediately started implementing on the other side of the aisle. The Democrats spending $2 trillion right out of the gate, and they spent trillions more over the course of the, you know, the next year plus. And even Democratic economists have pointed to these Biden Democratic policies as key drivers of inflation. Here's the president saying that he takes no responsibility whatsoever for the inflation because it already existed before he took office, which is just demonstrably false. But that's what he's telling the American people. Yeah, this president has a track record of not being honest with the American people. We have inflation for two reasons, the two punch from Joe Biden. First of all, his bad energy policies spiked energy prices right out of the gate. And then they just went on a spending spree. Uh, the last two massive, quote, stimulus bills that were passed by Joe Biden were not needed. Republicans warned they would lead to inflation, and here we are. We have inflation. We just had our first committee hearing this week, uh, and my new opportunity as chairman of the House Oversight Committee to try to start diving into all the wasted money in the, with the pandemic spending. And this administration never did anything to try to curtail that waste. They don't care about wasted tax dollars. All they care about is spending more tax dollars, and that's why we have inflation. In this new capacity that you mentioned, chairman of this important committee, a lot of Americans voted for accountability, for some balance. And when it's the party of the president doing the oversight, often the oversight is weak. And that's obviously changing now that you've got the gavel. But it also seems to me that it would be almost like the old phrase, drinking from a fire hose. There are so many things crying out for oversight and accountability. How do you sort of lay out a schedule of investigation, hearings, and inquiry where you can actually prioritize things, where you can hit on so many different subject matters because there's a lot that needs to be looked at and scrutinized. How do you go about that game plan to use your time and your resources wisely? Well, we had assumed this day would come. Uh, We actually started back in September planning ahead for Uh, February, when we got uh, started to have the full committee hearings, uh, I've been communicating with other committee chairs. There will be other committees that will have oversight-type hearings in in their committee rooms. I mean, we're two years behind in oversight because the Democrats did not have a single oversight hearing uh, pertaining to any type of wrongdoing or wrongful spending in the Biden administration. So we've got to go back two years plus stay current with the with the current needed oversight of this of this administration i mean every day you know you look at what's happening with our military look at looks what's happening with our foreign policy we have no idea what john Kerry's doing in china then you got all the scandals of the biden family that threatens our national security and then their bad energy policies the list goes on and on and on so we've got a lot of work to do in the house of representatives just in the name of oversight how are you planning to use your subpoena power? Because, you know, you can have subpoenas flying all over the place. It is a weapon that can be used broadly or more, you know, like a scalpel. 
I know that already a threat about subpoenas initiated a change in tune from DHS about upcoming hearings uh, and and an area of inquiry, which is the, the border crisis. Talk about the subpoena power that you have in this role and how you intend to use it or at least uh, threaten to use it and, and how you think that might sort of achieve some of the results that you're looking for. Well, we've got a subpoena strategy, and it's unfortunate that we're going to have to use subpoenas within this administration. I mean, theoretically, in the perfect world, subpoenas would only be used for people outside the government uh, because the government agencies and officials should always come in front of the oversight committee because that's what the committee was created to do. A type of oversight committee has been in existence since the days of Abraham Lincoln being in Congress. He was on what it would today be the Oversight Committee when he was in Congress. So you know, this is something that an administration supposed to do. They're supposed to send officials in front of the committee. Uh, we did have to threaten Mayorkas uh, with subpoenas for border patrol chiefs. Finally, they agreed to send them. That'll be hearing Tuesday. Wednesday, we have three witnesses coming, actually three majority witnesses that we called from the Republicans and one from the Democrats, uh, they will all have received subpoenas. So I have issued the subpoena pen. I don't know that that's public yet, but our first four subpoenas, I'm pretty confident, are going to be, they'll be complied with and those people will be in attendance. Then we're going to start working on uh, issuing subpoenas for these bank records for the Biden family influence peddling. I mean, this is getting uh, a bigger concern to every American every day as you now see these classified documents strode all over the place. Everyone knows uh, how big of a crook the president's son is. Uh, They're going to learn about the, the shady business dealings of the president's brothers. And there's a concern among a lot of people in Congress and a lot of people in America that that there are a couple of emails that are floating around out there that the Biden family used to profit from that that may, in fact, have been classified information. So uh, this Biden investigation is is moving ahead rapidly. We're starting to bring uh, people in. We're going to start doing more transcribed interviews, more depositions and We'll be having hearings very soon with respect to uh, where we are in this investigation. What was your reaction, sir, to the development this week, wherein Hunter Biden's lawyers came out and basically seemingly confirmed, after all, yes, the laptop was his, and the real scandal is that people accessed it and published some private information about Hunter Biden. All of a sudden, he's the victim, while the underlying premise of that victimhood tale is that the laptop is authentic and the stuff does belong to him, which was denied or evaded all along. Now, of course, it had been confirmed by various news organizations dating back all the way to the New York Post when they were getting suppressed before the election. Even more liberal outlets have said, yes, this this laptop is true. A lot of egg on a lot of faces, including those intelligence officers who all signed that letter. Basically, the Biden team, right before the election, didn't want this story out, so they said it was Russian disinformation. A bunch of people just fell in line. Well, now you've got Hunter's lawyers saying, oh, yeah, it's his. It's all real. Uh, our client is the victim, and we actually want criminal prosecutions of the people who are victimizing him. And then they came out and said, oh, well, actually, well, we're not necessarily conceding the point that the laptop was real, which they've already done. So they've sort of made a hash of this. They've, they've screwed it up. But a lot of sort of 
uh, in-your-face, shameless going on offense from Hunter Biden's attorneys this week. You're obviously leading one of the investigations and the committees about this. What was your thought when you saw this all go down this week? Well, I had two major thoughts. First of all, uh, this proved that Joe Biden has been dishonest the entire time because the laptop shows that he had direct communication with Hunter's shady business dealings with all the associates, with all the adversaries around the world that Hunter Biden was taking money from. This shows that uh, he was directly benefiting from some of these deals, uh, and that's going to be something that will be brought out in committees. But for me personally, you know, I was very happy after the midterm elections. We won the, the midterm races, not by the margin we hope, but a, a victory is a victory. And Jim Jordan and I had a press conference because Jordan's on the oversight committee too, and, and we'll be working together in judiciary and oversight on a lot of things. We had a press conference announcing that we were going to formally investigate Joe Biden in the majority. So this would have been mid-November. The Biden lawyers, many of these we're talking about now, they were trashing me. They hired outside groups saying that uh, the laptop had been compromised, that that stuff wasn't true, that I, you know, we were going to be a clown show. You know, none of this stuff was true. And here we are today. They're admitting it's true. And I mean, it's just it's just how can anyone believe this administration? You know, I feel vindicated because the way the media and I'm talking about, you know, CBS, ABC, NBC, everybody but MSNBC, the way that they treated me in November versus today is totally different because they their eyes have been open. They realize now that the laptop wasn't Russian disinformation. They realize now that there is damaging stuff that is true on the laptop. And more than anything, they realize that Joe Biden and this White House has lied about everything from the laptop to uh, what they had with classified documents, how many places they had classified documents, and whether or not uh, federal authorities have searched those places for classified documents. So I think the walls are starting to close in on Joe Biden with respect to his family corruption. Congressman, I do want to ask you about a hearing that happened this week. We actually played some sound from it earlier, the border crisis hearing, one of, I'm sure, quite a few happening over the next couple months, maybe the next couple years. And I just clipped a couple of sound bites from Democrats on the committee, and it seemed like one of their overarching themes was this is not a real issue. The Republicans are conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theorists. Uh, they are just sliming and slandering illegal immigrants who are asylum seekers and really talking about this as Biden's crisis is inaccurate and using terms like invasion or highlighting the fentanyl problem. It's really just racism. That's the way they framed it. They accused the Republican majority on your committee of basically being racists and, and to bootstrap this big phony issue uh, just because they have some conspiratorial obsession with a problem that isn't really as bad as the GOP says. I mean, it's it's pretty shameless. It's It's beyond pretty shameless, honestly, for them knowing the numbers, knowing the data, to try to downplay it. You would think there might be an effort to say, you know, we need real solutions beyond, you know, the normal left-wing amnesty stuff. But no, it seemed like, you know, one of their big talking points was 
racism, as usual. Yeah, I mean, that's a common theme among Democrats in Washington. Uh, any Republican that would suggest anything negative about uh, China or the border it would be a racist. You know, they're a white supremacist. They've even called Byron Donald the white supremacist, uh, the, our uh, member of my mm-hmm. committee from, from Florida. I mean, it's a joke. And, but I think one thing that I've learned, I never watched MSNBC until the last two months because they spend a lot of time trashing me because I have the audacity to investigate Joe Biden. But you, if, if you watch it, and if this is where the liberal members of Congress get their information from MSNBC, they don't know that there's a crisis at the border. They think that all that's going on at the border is a handful of people are, are running for their lives for political asylum from from uh, you know some bad Central American country, and and they're just coming over here and you know to, to be model citizens. I mean, they have no idea the extent as to the numbers of how many illegals, a quarter of a million at least last month, and growing every day. These Democrats have issues with reality because they don't get information and they believe what you know when Pelosi was speaker, whatever she told her members, they believed. Whatever Joe Biden said that Joe Biden well, we didn't know anything about my son's business dealings. That laptop's not real. That's Russian disinformation. They believe that. And it you know, I don't know how you get through their minds what the the reality of all well, or they at least or they pretend. Up. Right. They either believe it. And I think there's probably some gullible uh, witless members who just go along and believe it. I think there's other people who are just more deliberately dishonest who realize that there's this very serious problem. They know exactly why it's happening. They know exactly why the Biden administration's failing policies have created the worst crisis at the border in modern American history. And rather than have to grapple with that reality because it's ideologically inconvenient for them and for their political team, what they do instead is they lie and they play the race card and say this is just a strange obsession of a bunch of racists just to try to disqualify the whole issue as a means of deflecting away from it. So I think some of it is ignorance, the way that you're describing. I think some of it is deliberate deflection from dishonest people. And there's, I think, a blend of that on the committee based on my experience watching some of those hearings. And, of course, it's it's incumbent on you guys to plow forward anyway. You're not going to let false allegations of bigotry uh, deter the actual mission here. And it's a target-rich environment. Uh, we've just touched on a, a tiny handful of the areas that need to be looked at. So I know you're going to be very busy over these next couple of years, Mr. Chairman. We hope you'll come back on the program. I will definitely do it. We're not going to let up. They've played the race card. Uh, every, all six years I've been in Congress, we're going to plow forward. Our country needs sensible people with common sense who get the backs of the taxpayers, and that's what we're going to do on my committee, the Oversight Committee. That is the chairman of the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability, James Comer, Republican of Kentucky, on The Guy Benson Show. Really appreciate it, sir. We've got to run up on a break. We'll take it. We'll come right back. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. Still to come, Congressman Mike Gallagher will be joining us at the top of the next hour on this balloon situation, which sounds, I mean, you talk about a balloon, it's like just a happy-go-lucky idea. Yeah, thought of a balloon. It's just lovely. Except this one's not so lovely. So 
It's not a superficial story at all. This Chinese spy balloon that is still over U.S. airspace and maybe for quite a while. It's unclear what the administration is going to do about it. They, I guess, ruled out shooting it down. Can we capture it? I'd like to pick apart their technology. Like, there's got to be a way to do that, right? I mean, you think. No, well, I guess we'll see. We'll ask Congressman Gallagher about it coming up in the next hour. We will also check in with Trey Yingst on the ground in Kiev, Ukraine. He just interviewed the president of that country yesterday. We'll ask him about that. Janice Dean, still to come. Also want to note, very, very strong jobs report today, which beat expectations by a significant margin. More than half a million jobs created last month. So that's, that's a big win for the U.S. economy. And now some of the experts are starting to wonder, 517,000 new jobs in January, low unemployment. Maybe we're not going to hit a recession in 23, although people are worried about 2024 for recession time. Way too early to tell, but some good data today on that front. Brand new hour coming up next. As I mentioned, Mike Gallagher, Wisconsin, will be here. You don't want to miss this interview. It's straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Thanks so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day, including bonus Benson on the weekend. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. Joining us right now is Congressman Mike Gallagher, a Republican from Wisconsin. He's a military veteran. He's also the chairman of a brand-new committee on combating China. And, boy, is China in the news right now. Congressman, great to have you back here. Great to be back. First question, just broadly, what are you seeing and hearing about this incident involving this balloon? What do people need to know, and what are you concerned about? What questions are you demanding answers to? I think uh, we need to know a few things. One, why didn't we shoot it down earlier? Or why don't we have the capability to disable it and gain control of it and then potentially look under the hood, analyze the instrumentation, and understand exactly what we're dealing with? I mean, particularly if we track this thing from the Aleutian Islands over sparsely populated parts of Canada and then over Montana, uh, there had to be options where we could have shot it down sooner. The second thing I'm wondering is whether this was deliberate and time to coincide with Secretary Blinken's visit to Beijing. That would be entirely within the playbook that the CCP has used in the past to embarrass our own diplomats, embarrass other countries. Um, that would make a lot of sense to me. And I'm actually glad that the Secretary of State decided to postpone his trip is something I called for this morning. That was the right decision. It just would have looked very odd for him to be doing a grip and grin with General Secretary Xi Jinping so soon after a violation of U.S. sovereignty. Um, and then I think, of course, this raises the broader question of who we're dealing with in the Chinese Communist Party. There's been a charm offensive underway by the CCP over the last two weeks designed to lull us into a false sense of security. This should remind us who we're dealing with, uh, and we're dealing with an aggressive and hostile foreign power who's trying to undermine our sovereignty and our national security. 
is anyone buying the Chinese excuse and denial that, oops, this was just a civilian research airship that blew off course and just happened to show up in American airspace? I mean, that's the best they could come up with? Nobody should buy that. I mean, one one thing, the Pentagon in, in a press conference, I believe, said that they that the Chinese are still able to steer the thing right now. Um, I, I don't think there's anything suggesting that this was a purely civilian weather aircraft. Um, even if it was, it's, it's still a question of uh, violating our airspace and understanding what's going on in our sovereign airspace. Um, but all indications suggest that this was an intelligence collection asset. And the fact that it was spotted first in the vicinity of Malmstrom Air Force Base which is where we have Minuteman three intercontinental ballistic missiles, I think furthers the idea that this was an intelligence collection asset. But we need to understand it. The other thing that didn't make sense to me, guys, it seems last night some Pentagon officials were downplaying the intelligence collection capabilities of the balloon um, and, and saying, well, not to worry. There's nothing it can collect that a satellite can't. Uh, are we confident about that? Do we understand exactly what we're dealing with here? I really want a better understanding of what this thing is and what it can do, which is why we've called for uh, emergency meetings with the intelligence community. I think Speaker McCarthy called for a gang of eight meeting. Uh, there's a lot of unanswered questions right now, and we need to have those answered. Yeah, that was my next question, because we have satellite imagery that they, I'm sure, gather of our territory all the time, and we do the same to them. Is this really more of a threat? Is this different? I guess it's just sort of a question mark next to a lot of those issues at the moment. And going back to one of your very first points, Congressman, I know there's a lot of people saying, why the hell didn't we just shoot this down? As soon as we saw it, it's over Montana. You can find a sparsely populated area. Shoot it down. Apparently, it's an enormous balloon, like the size of multiple buses. It's gigantic. So I can understand just blasting it out of the sky and having this thing hurtle to earth could end up being a problem. But we spend, I think quite rightly, a huge amount of money on our military and our technology every single year in our federal budget. Surely there's some sort of way that we can commandeer this thing and then take it into U.S. custody and totally take the thing apart and gather as much new information as we can based on Chinese technology. Is there any new technology in this thing? What does it appear to be used for? Have they stolen some of our technology and put it in this balloon? I feel like there's a lot of information to be gleaned if we can capture this thing. But at least from the public statement so far, it doesn't sound like there's necessarily any plan to do so. Is this just going to potentially float away out of our airspace it at some point? It seems that way. You, but you'd think, I mean, if they're just going to let it travel eastward over the United States, uh, at least when it gets over water, you can shoot the darn thing down. Um, you know, I'm a Marine, so I spent most of my time walking around on the ground. So I don't, I don't pretend to have the uh, technical sophistication that my Air Force brethren do, but um, I you know, my understanding is if, if this thing were at a super high altitude, as opposed to about 60,000 feet, which is what I think the Pentagon said, it might have been more difficult to shoot down. But there had to be a way you could have disabled it, get in control of it or, or just shot it out of the sky. Um, and also the other thing that they seem to be highlighting yesterday was the fact that, oh, well, this has happened multiple times before. If that's the case, 
all the more reason why we should have a well-developed standard operating procedure for what we do when we detect these things. Uh, and it seems like we didn't have that in this case. And there was some disagreement in the administration about shooting it down versus waiting. So I, I still don't have an answer to these, these questions. And um, this is a serious threat, I think, not only to sensitive military facilities, but again, to the basic idea of us controlling our own sovereign airspace. Yeah, because the Pentagon said earlier that this balloon could be floating over the U.S. for another few days, which just seems like insult to injury. I don't know how that's allowed to happen. And I'm reminded in the early 2000s, the U.S. had a plane that was grounded in China. It was an American military plane. The Chinese completely tore it to pieces and then I believe shipped it back to us in a number of boxes just to underscore the point that they had totally – exploited the situation to find every little piece of information they possibly could out of that plane. Seems like an opportunity here to do something similar with Chinese technology. But, Congressman, one other theory that I've seen, which is kind of taking it to another level, which is kind of taking it to another level, I don't know if there's any validity to this or not, but there's some suggestion, at least some people speculating, could the Chinese be doing something this brazen in order to try to bait the U.S. into shooting it down just to test what kind of technology and capabilities we have at a certain altitude. Could that be the case, considering how clumsy this appears to be on the Chinese part? Or is that just maybe an excuse to do nothing? It could be. Uh, I mean, that would have to be a pretty sophisticated piece of equipment because you think about it has to be collecting in real time as a missile came at it and beaming it back to Beijing to really understand the counter response from us. So I, you can't discount that hypothesis. I, I could see a logic to it. Um, to me, it's more likely either they were trying to embarrass us uh, with Blinken's visit or that this was a tit for tat response to the fact that we just have gotten uh, an expanded basing agreement, uh, not only with Japan, but in the Philippines. And I know for a fact that that makes them very nervous because it enhances our ability to prevent them from taking Taiwan. So the honest answer, guys. And Marines, Marines going to Guam, too, right? I think there was a Guam update as well recently. Yeah, new Marine base in Guam, really a, a, a very positive development in terms of the Commandant of the Marine Corps' concept for stand-in forces and Marine littoral regiments. So finally we're starting to see some meaningful improvements our force posture in the Indo-Pacific. And as we've talked about before, I think the best thing we can do to prevent a war over Taiwan, the best thing we can do to preserve the peace is to surge hard power to the Indo-Pacific. We don't want Taiwan's future to look like Ukraine's present. So certainly the Chinese are paying attention to that. And they're very creative in terms of looking at the whole global chessboard and all the instruments of their national power and being willing to wield them at times when we're more hesitant. Congressman, what about the point that people are making saying, okay, this is a balloon, they've got, let's say, high-powered cameras, they're spying on us, what have you. That's bad, it's concerning, but effectively the Chinese government or its subsidiaries or auxiliaries have espionage tools inside the pockets of millions of Americans, especially younger Americans, vis-a-vis TikTok. It's like, well, if we're freaking out over this one balloon – that's floating over our country, whether it's 60,000 feet, I saw somewhere else, 100,000 feet, whatever it is, people are 
rightly concerned about that and focused on it. But what about what the Chinese are sort of doing right out in the open? Is that a fair component to this whole larger conversation? Well, I agree that TikTok is a problem, which is why we should uh, ban it and pass my bipartisan bill with uh, Representative Raj Krishnamurthy, who's now my ranking member on the China Committee, to ban TikTok. But I think there's a couple of differences. One, you know, TikTok could only collect information on a sensitive nuclear facility if someone inside that facility was using TikTok. TikTok, and now there's a government ban, and so theoretically that would not be allowed. And even then, it would be more a limited feature than what you could do with a a a high-altitude balloon armed with an intelligence collection device. The other thing, and again, we don't know, is, you know, is there a component of – could you put an offensive weapon on a high-altitude air balloon? And it need not be a missile or something like that. It could be an electromagnetic uh, weapon, something that could have kinetic effect, not just be an intelligence collection tool, but actually disable certain things in terms of our critical infrastructure here domestically. I'm not saying that I know that that was on this balloon at all, but I I think that's a little bit different than having an app. Well, uh, I'd like to know. I think that's the point. I think a lot of people would like to know. This thing's over our airspace. Pentagon says it could be there for days. It would, you would assume, be in our profound interest to get our hands on this thing as soon as possible and pour over it with a fine-tooth comb and figure out what the Chinese are and are not doing with a piece of technology like this. Finally, Congressman, since you mentioned your ranking member, I know it's been sort of a little bit of slow going in getting everyone assigned to this new committee combating and countering the threats from China, but now there is a ranking Democrat on the committee. Sounds like you have a pretty good working relationship. That's my understanding with him so far. Republicans, Democrats, Wisconsinites, Illinoisans, all sorts of stuff happening there in terms of synergy. But is this the type of event, as you're on the phone with members or prospective members of your committee, that has serious bipartisan interest? Because it feels like, you know, not that you would ever wish for something like this, but if you want to kick off your new committee on a bipartisan and very serious note, where this is not going to be frivolous partisan politics like we see in so many other committees, it seems like an event like this could be a pretty significant galvanizing or catalyzing event. I totally agree. And, and just a data point here, I landed in route back to Wisconsin in O'Hare last night when the story broke. So, one, I'm landing in Raj Krishnamurthy's district because he controls O'Hare. Uh, and my first instinct was to reach out to him to do a joint bipartisan statement as opposed to a partisan one, and he gladly agreed, and, and we were able to get something out there quickly. Now, yeah, listen, I saw it's that. a statement. It, it's not, it's not like going to change the world, but I, we thought it was important just to, to start out on a bipartisan foot. And I think the more we can speak with one voice and point out in bipartisan fashion that we shouldn't tolerate this infringement on our sovereignty, I think the more powerful we will be. The thing we need to do to be able to hold a full committee hearing on something like this is work quickly to pass rules for the committee. There's all sorts of dumb logistical things that stand in our way right now, but we're moving forward now that we have Democrat members. We're going to have a meeting on on Wednesday in which this will be a topic of discussion. And you look at the roster, you know, it's not just Raja and I who've worked well on the Intel Committee. You got Seth Moulton, fellow Marine, Jake Oshenclaw, fellow Marine, Mikey Sherrill, a veteran who I've worked with on the Armed Services Committee. We we got a great crew of Republicans and Democrats, so we're eager to work together, and I, I do think this can be a galvanizing event for the committee. Well, as a frequent flyer, if your ranking member, as you said, quote, controls O'Hare, 
I would like a word with him about a few things at that airport, but that's a conversation for another day. Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, the 8th Congressional District, the chairman of this new China committee, uh, highly relevant today, obviously. And we really appreciate your time, sir. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks, Guy. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this short break. Please stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Thank you for being here. So this is a pretty remarkable development, a story that we have been on here on the program. In Virginia, there's this scandal in Northern Virginia, a couple of them actually involving Northern Virginia schools. There is the sexual assault scandal and its cover-up. It's become a criminal matter. And then there's also a state investigation into at least 17 schools, most of them in Fairfax County, high schools, withholding and delaying notification to families and students about honors, academic honors that they had earned, apparently due to equity demands, where in Fairfax County they now have a mantra that they are striving for equal outcomes for all students. Outcomes, equal outcomes, which is, as I keep saying, unethical, immoral, and impossible, and a terrible thing to set as a goal. But that's one of the goals now in Fairfax County, A handful of elite students got this national merit honor, and they didn't tell them until after key portions of the college admissions process had already elapsed. We've talked about it several times. We had the Attorney General of Virginia on this show talking about it. Well, there's an update. In addition to the administration's investigation into this that I just mentioned, there was also legislation that Governor Youngkin was pushing to address this and say it is now legally required. I mean, it's insane that this even needs to happen. But the bill stipulates that schools have to promptly inform students when they receive these type of accolades. That's it. Very straightforward. The bill wouldn't be necessary if not for the fact that apparently these delays were happening a bunch of places, even though they said, oh, it's just a one-time human error at one high school, and then it was three, and then it was seven, then it was 11, then it was 17. There's one county, then a few other counties it starts bleeding in. There's some evidence that this might have happened in the last couple of years as well. So much for the one-time human error. Seems like on some level, some places, this was a policy determined by someone. So Yunkin's bill says you have to give students and their families awareness of these honors promptly. And yesterday, the Democrat-controlled Senate in Richmond killed the bill in committee. All the Republicans and one Democrat were on one side, but the committee killed this bill. The Democrats voted it down. Youngkin responding, I don't understand how anybody could object to the idea that when a student receives an award or an accolade that they are informed about it. He said, that's just a matter of common sense. I would ask our Senate Democrats to put down politics and do what's right for Virginia's kids. It's a no-brainer. By the way, Virginians really taking the side of Governor Yunkin overall. Brand new Mason Dixon poll has Yunkin at 56-31 approval. Very impressive, plus 25. By comparison, Joe Biden, the president, majority disapproval in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So Yunkin's coming at this fight from the moral high ground and now very much the political high ground as well. The Guy Benson Show continues. Trey Yinks is here from Ukraine joining us right after this.
talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show, coming to you from Palm Springs, California today. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. And joining us now from Kiev, Ukraine, it's Trey Yinkst, Fox News foreign correspondent, who just had a big interview yesterday with Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. And Trey, it's great to have you back on the show. Scott, thanks for having me. I want to play for the audience one snippet of your exchange with Zelensky, sort of a status assessment of the war as it stands now. Cut 26. At this moment, your troops in the east are bracing for a new Russian offensive. What is your assessment of the situation along the front lines? Well, this situation on the front line is complicated. Well, it wasn't easy over those months. Uh, For over a year, we have this war. Uh, People are exhausted, but still there is this resilience of our soldiers. It's important to have the resilience among the people. There's this high level of morale, and Russia is preparing for the remonch. We can feel this. I believe that it has already started, either fully or not fully. We will see that in uh, the nearest weeks. So that last piece, Trey, significant. Russia preparing for a relaunch, sort of regathering, recuperating, and then they're going to try to push again offensively into the country. And Zelensky suggested that it may have already started at a low level already. What do you make of that? That seems sort of like something that people have been worried about and waiting for, and Zelensky at least is telling you that that's what he's seeing. Absolutely. According to Ukrainian intelligence, this has already started. And that was a surprising thing to hear from the Ukrainian leader because there's been a lot of buildup across Ukraine in preparation for this expected Russian offensive, an expansion of what's already taking place on the ground. But for Zelensky to confirm that, I think really just illustrates the concern of Ukrainian leadership here in Kyiv. They understand they have bloody battles ahead. The situation on the front line is extremely difficult. And the way Zelensky described it to us on and off camera was a situation where there is real risk of Ukraine losing even territory that they've been able to liberate in the eastern Donbass region. So there's a lot at stake here. There are a lot of elements at play. And the Russians have been very clear this week that they plan to escalate not only through the words that they're using to describe this conflict and what comes next, but also through their actions on the ground. At another point in your interview, Zelensky warned that if Ukraine were to lose this war overall, that could usher in World War III. Now, some people might roll their eyes and say that sounds a bit hype, you know, hyperbolic. Uh, He might want to say that because obviously it's his country that's been invaded. They're fighting for survival. But really, World War Three. What's the theory there that a Ukrainian loss? And of course, so far, the Ukrainians, thank God, have been doing very well. But if they were to lose, that this would have much wider implications. Why does he believe that's the case? And why do some Western leaders take that very threat quite seriously, actually? Well, they take it seriously based on the words of Vladimir Putin in the past. Putin has called the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. The way Vladimir Putin looks at the future of his country is an expanded version of how it exists today. In 2014, he annexed Crimea, an area of land that belongs to Ukraine. And then at that same time period, he 
encouraged Russian-backed separatists in the Donbas region to take territory that also is sovereign Ukrainian territory. And so Zelensky's explanation is that if Ukraine falls, Putin won't stop here. He will continue on to neighboring countries like Poland, a NATO country that would ultimately trigger Article 5 and lead to a much broader conflict. So that's the perspective of the Ukrainians. They believe that if Ukraine falls, it will not just be Ukraine, it will then be Moldova, it will then be part of Poland, and it will be the Baltic countries. And that's the perspective of the Ukrainian leader, and that's what he made clear to us in our interview yesterday. Well, and to your point about NATO, the second a NATO country is invaded, it's not just a few more countries getting involved. All of NATO, by treaty, must get involved. And that's the type of thing that could escalate into the World War III level scenario that Zelensky's talking about. So it's not just completely far-fetched, that admonition, that warning that we heard from him. I want to play cut 28. You were asking a question that I've actually been curious about now for a while. Does Zelensky ever speak with or have an opportunity maybe to speak with Putin? Could these guys get on the phone and maybe de-escalate? You said that Putin's planning to escalate. Uh, Could words directly between these two leaders maybe bring this thing down a few notches? You asked the question. Cut 28. Here's the response. When was the last time you tried to call Russian President Vladimir Putin? Before the full-scale invasion, I don't remember the exact day, but uh, during the previous year, I I attempted to make several phone calls to him. Even several days before the full-scale war, I was talking to leaders how it was happening, and I told uh, them that we can't uh, have a conversation. Would you be willing to speak with him now? No, no, I'm I'm not interested. I mean, he's the one who doesn't keep his own word. What conditions would you need to have a conversation about peace with Russian President Putin? We could start talking about diplomatic steps with Russia only after they will withdraw their forces from the Ukrainian territory. So let them withdraw and then we'll start talking. Trey, I found it really interesting, just the flat-out no. Would you be willing to speak with Putin now? No. Basically, the guy's a liar. He doesn't keep his word. That, I think, was a significant answer to something that maybe some people like me had been wondering about. It was something that I was wondering as well. Could he just pick up the phone and call the Russian leader? And he said that he has no interest in speaking with him. I pushed him further after that and said that, from the perspective of an observer who looks at this conflict, it appears there is a stalemate for peace. The conditions in which Zelensky lays out in our interview to talk with Russian President Putin and hold any sort of discussions about peace, they're very clear. But one of the key points is withdrawing all Russian troops from Ukrainian territory. Well, Vladimir Putin has been very clear he plans to continue with this invasion. And so My question to him was, how does this end? Who blinks first? And as things stand now, there is no end in sight. And Zelensky told me during the interview that he has no plans to call Putin and that he has no interest in speaking with him. So as it stands now, there is truly a communication stalemate, but also a stalemate on many parts of the battlefield. It's part of the reason the Russians are escalating, because in certain areas of that front line, Neither side has been able to make significant territorial gains since 
a massive counteroffensive that was launched back in September by the Ukrainians, and that was in the Kharkiv region, in the northern part of Ukraine, not along the really area where the focal point of the fighting is now in the Donbass, the Far East. And it kind of would make sense, Trey, that Zelensky would say, no, I'm not really interested in speaking with Putin because it sounds like there's nothing to talk about right now, right? I mean, if the Ukrainians say, we will talk, we will negotiate an armistice when the Russians get out of our territory, and only then, and the Russians are saying, well, that's our territory now, and we want more, at least from that perspective, there really isn't much to talk about between those two leaders at this point. Last question, Trey Yanks, and it goes back to a previous assignment that you had at Fox News out of the Jerusalem Bureau. Very intriguing development a few nights ago in Iran, where there were a series of explosions, The Israeli military claimed responsibility afterwards. They said that they were going in and trying to take out or at least diminish the capacity of Iran's missile and drone programs. And to the extent that they were successful, because the Israelis said it was a mission success, the Iranians said it was all very superficial damage, nothing to see here. They would have a reason to lie, of course. I guess we'll find out eventually. But if the Israelis were able to successfully degrade to a significant level and extent, Those programs in particular from the Iranian regime, that's not just a win for Israel and regional stability and peace, given the menace that Iran represents separately, but also good news for the Ukrainians and Zelensky, because my understanding is the Russians have been supplied heavily, especially with drones, by the Iranian regime. So if they have had that capacity degraded to a large extent, that could make a difference here, couldn't it? Absolutely. The Ukrainians are facing Iranian-made Shahid drones across major population centers in Kyiv and Kharkiv, Ukraine's first and second largest cities. And if the Iranians aren't able to supply the Russians with these kamikaze drones, it will give Ukraine an advantage and, in part, address one of the threats that the Ukrainian population faces as this war continues. Trey Yangst, Fox News foreign correspondent, joining us from Kyiv, Ukraine. Really big interview yesterday. It aired on Special Report. You can find it online. We played some of the clips here in the interview. Trey, I always appreciate your time, your insights. Please stay safe. Thank you. The Guy Benson Show returns after this very short break. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thank you for tuning in. So this is, I would say, an object lesson, a side-by-side comparison, a dichotomy that people can look at and perhaps derive some lessons from. Down in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has rolled out his latest budget. And it's quite impressive when you look at what they have achieved in Florida, setting aside some of the specific policies that are floated in there. I know he's doing a little bit of trolling or at least focusing on issues that are getting attention. So, for example, he's offering, I believe, tax breaks involving baby formula, which makes sense. I saw tax breaks involving gas stoves, which is probably a a bit of a troll leaning into an issue that, again, the left started. We talked about this. The left started with lefty bureaucrats announcing that they might need to ban gas stoves for people's own good. Some left-wing jurisdictions have already done it. Then there was a federal bureaucrat talking about it. Conservatives noticed and pushed back. 
and the media sat back and laughed at these weird conservatives for waging a strange culture war, which is how it always works. Conservatives see left-wing excess. They notice it. They object to it. They work to counter it. And the media decides that's a culture war emanating from the right, not from the left. Dan McLaughlin at National Review has a really smart piece about how, for example, the government in Minnesota, which is pretty evenly divided, but the Democrats have control, they have been waging an aggressive culture war on virtually every front, from abortion to gender identity all the way on down. You pick a left-wing cause, they've been shoving a bunch of radical stuff down the throats of Minnesotans, passing this whole agenda, and you've heard almost nothing about that, have you? Right, when Texas does something or Florida does something, there's a Republican governor pushing some sort of idea that the left doesn't like, they go yelling and screaming, they call it a culture war, the mainstream media picks up on it, They dispatch a bunch of reporters wringing their hands. Look at this social warrior, social issues, hot button, provocative, divisive, culture war. We get all of that kind of coverage. But when it's the left wing waging a culture war, there's almost crickets from the national news media because they agree with that culture war. Right. So in their minds, this is just good. Well, the Democrats are just doing good things. It's only a culture war when Republicans or conservatives try to do something or even react to a left-wing culture war. That's sort of how that dynamic works. So a bit of a diversion there. I just wanted to make that point. Getting back to the budget here and looking at Florida versus New York, Governor DeSantis and his team put out an infographic, and I, I just think it really speaks volumes. Here's what DeSantis tweeted yesterday. He said, four years ago, we promised a sound budget with $5.2 billion in reserves, $1.6 billion in the rainy day fund, and $335 million in tax relief. So that was four years ago, his first budget. Now, here's the first budget of the new term, and he says, today, listen to this, our framework for freedom budget, so this is the brand new budget, contains $15.7 billion in reserves, triple the goal from four years ago. $3.4 billion in the rainy day fund, doubling, more than doubling what the goal was four years ago, and $2 billion in tax relief, as opposed to less than half a billion four years ago. So they're going to have... First of all, obviously, a government operating not just at balance, but in the black. Imagine that. I know it's hard to think about, especially in the context of the federal government. But they're going to have a government operating in the black with reserves nearly exceeding $16 billion just at the state level, adding billions more to a rainy day fund for God knows what down the line. They have rainy days and emergencies in the state of Florida, obviously. And on top of all of that, even with that, they're going to be able to cut taxes and provide $2 billion in tax relief. That seems pretty damn impressive to me. Meanwhile, in the state of New York, and we mentioned this earlier in the week with Jesse Tarloff when she was here, Kathy Hochul has announced nearly $2 billion, north of $1.5 billion, in new tax increases in the state of New York. 
And part of that is because they're worried about the public transit system and declining ridership and all sorts of issues. So they want to raise money over here with taxes to then spend more money into this system over here. Remember, Kathy Hochul was the one not long ago sneering at conservatives who were complaining about New York's policies, basically saying, we don't want you here. Oh, if you're one of those awful people, get out of New York. Move to Florida. You're not welcome. Go somewhere else. Go be with your people somewhere else. And a lot of people said, okay, see ya. Now, she had a real scare in the election anyway, only won by middling single digits. Very unimpressive statewide for a Democrat in New York because a lot of people are unhappy, as it turns out. And then she's really changed her tune of late, saying, you know what, we've got to get people back to New York, come to think of it. All that stuff I said about, you know, get out, we don't want you, never mind. I mean, setting aside the fact that New York has been chasing away and demonizing successful people for years. That's what happens. These Democrats come in, they rail against millionaires and billionaires and companies, all these greedy, horrible people, and eventually they say, all right, I'm out. You want to soak me, you want to demonize me, treat me like I'm the enemy, I'm going to go somewhere else where there's leadership where that doesn't happen. And then they look around and say, "Uh uh-oh, now what? So they're trying to get people back to New York. I don't think that's going to work if you look at Florida where they're cutting taxes by $2 billion and they have a very functional government doing very well on sound footing in New York. They're going to raise taxes by almost as much with all sorts of basket case fiscal problems. It's no wonder that for the first time ever, this was another headline this week, for the first time ever, closing out 2022, Florida had a larger workforce than New York. Never happened before, but now it has, and it's not a coincidence. Choose your path, America. California, New York, places like Florida and Texas. I know the way that I would vote, and maybe I'll have the chance to literally take that vote, and we all will. In a couple years, we'll see. The Guy Benson Show continues. Final hour of the program coming up next. Janice Dean is here. Can't wait to talk to her about a whole array of issues straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Friday. Happy Friday from Palm Springs, California. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day. It's on demand, no charge to you. That also includes bonus Benson over the weekend, something that we do very much recommend. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us there. You can follow me personally at Guy P. Benson on those same platforms. With us now from our New York headquarters, It's Janice Dean, senior meteorologist at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author. Her brand new book is I Am the Storm, inspiring stories of people who fight against overwhelming odds. You can also check out the Janice Dean podcast at foxnewspodcast.com. Janice, welcome back. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. Now, are you a little under the weather? I don't believe that I am. Okay, okay. It just sounded like you had a little bit of a, a cold. Uh, and I'm a mom, so I notice these things. Or were you out <laughs> I, last night? 
neither. I went to bed early. I got up very early. Uh, maybe I've got allergies, allergies or something, because I'm not used to being in a desert climate like ah. this where I am in California. But I feel great. Okay, um, good. I'm That's all I, I care about. No, no, no. Okay. I, you, I just noticed these things because I just got over a cold as well, and I feel like I have a little bit of a nasal. I'm a radio person. You know that. So I noticed these little nuances, and I just thought, <laughs> I hope that you're feeling okay, and I'm really glad that you are. Oh, I'm feeling just fabulous. And, in fact, we're going to call on your radio experience in just a little while. I want to cover a bunch of topics here, starting with the weather, because you are, indeed, senior meteorologist here at Fox. It seems like a lot of the Northeast, not, you know, Buffalo in that area, but sort of the New York area, maybe the Mid-Atlantic, we've been getting away with pretty mild weather this winter so far. Christmas was really cold, but it hasn't been bad. I haven't been wearing heavy winter coats out very much at all. Uh, Not so much right now. Bitter cold arriving. It could get even worse tomorrow. I know in the Midwest there are problems as well, storms happening. What's the overall picture as it's really feeling very wintry in America all of a sudden? Yes, so the Northern Plains have had, I think, the worst of the winter weather this season. Uh, Dallas, by the way, this past week got slammed by an epic ice storm. So they've had wintry weather as well. And here in the Northeast, we're getting the coldest air that in some cases, some areas haven't felt in five years at least. Uh, Maine's wind chills will be in the negative 40 to negative 50 range today and tomorrow. No, No, thank you. So that's what, you know, all the headlines are. Polar vortex, which likes to visit us. You know, it happens. It happens. It gets cold. And this is going to be short-lived. But it is dangerous, so that's why we're highlighting it. Also, it's February, right? It gets cold in the wintertime. And some of us have been maybe spoiled a little bit for the last couple of weeks, not really getting temperatures anywhere close to this. But winter is absolutely here. And to your point, people need to be careful and just take precautions. And when the... Weather gets really cold and the temperatures drop and plunge into a certain range. It can be dangerous for a lot of different folks. So I just wanted to bring that up with you right off the top. Yes. Especially pets, too. We have to talk about the pets because, you know, taking them out in the minus 40 degrees is not great. you got to think about something else to do. I have pets on my list as well, Janice. We have so much. (laughs) We have so much on the docket today. I did mention also in the intro that you're out with this new book. We had a long conversation about it on launch day, I believe, or at least launch week here on the program. I am the storm. And I've seen that you've put out a few social media posts about sort of a dearth of reviews, which is something that I think a lot of authors in a certain space can relate to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then also just some of the games that get played. And I never really understand how this works where book scans, actual sales, don't necessarily translate into bestseller list placement. Even Mm -hmm. though you have been placed in the past, sometimes you'll see a book selling well, but it's nowhere near the top of a list or doesn't even make a list. And I'm just wondering, since you've been sort of pretty open about it, what you're seeing happening with I Am The Storm out there. Well, it's been difficult to make the bestseller list, and not that that should be you know, the gold standard, right? I'm just happy to get the book out into the universe. Um, Mostly Sunny did very well, was a New York Times bestseller. um, And it was 
it was proportioned, right? So people did buy it on Amazon and they bought it in their local bookstores. And to make a bestseller list, they really want sort of a a sampling of all of that, right? Like your book sales can't just come from Amazon. And I understand that. I think it's important. You can't just have one place, a one-stop shop to buy all your stuff, right? Although, although, just to push back on that, devil's advocate, to me... And I understand that there's an editorial component to these bestseller lists. I think a lot of people don't understand this, right? I certainly didn't before I wrote my book with Mary Catherine Ham. Mm-hmm. I assumed it was like if X number of books get sold, no matter how they get sold, they scan the books and you're on the bestseller list if you're in the top whatever, you know, 20 or whatever it is in the country. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. There's an editorial component. They've got a whole system, yes. sort of like an internal algorithm that's very mysterious to mm-hmm. outside people. Yeah. I understand the point that you're making and the way that they would defend it. The counterpoint would be if you sell a bunch of books through, I don't care, one bookstore somewhere, one avenue, if they are sold books that are your book, I feel like that's how this should be calculated. Obviously, it's not. It's not. But I think it's like if every single person, if a million people buy your book but it's only Amazon, and no one goes into a bookstore and buys a single copy in a bookstore, you've still sold a million copies. Right. So I just don't really understand that. That's just like a mini rant on my side. Please <laughs> it's okay. Continue. It's good. It's good. And I think there have been authors in the past that haven't made the bestseller list, and yet they have sold a million copies of their book over the years. And so I I think there was just a problem with, with distribution with some of the booksellers, which we're trying to get to the bottom of. Um, it is technically, I guess, a bestseller on Amazon in certain categories, but I just felt like the book wasn't supported as well as the other ones, and we're trying to understand why. But because you know this is a book about overcoming odds and going up against big obstacles, I felt mm-hmm. it was important to point this out for other people who want to get into the publishing world that this isn't a fair process. Yeah, and it's also... Maybe coincidental, maybe not, that your previous books that were bestsellers and made lists were sort of happy, sunny, yay, mm. isn't life wonderful? And then this one is a little bit darker, has a little bit more of an edge to it. Obviously, you've been much more political. You also include some of that political commentary about New York and Cuomo in this book. and then, But it's gotten a huge amount of attention, a huge amount of push at Fox. And then this one, weirdly, just seems to not have hit certain marks. Obviously, you're sort of looking under the hood and trying to figure things out. People can, of course, help the process by buying the book. That's always a good thing. I Am the Storm by Janice Dean, available everywhere right now. Okay, since you mentioned pets and being careful with your dogs and cats and other critters when it's really cold outside, I am genuinely curious. I don't know the answer to this, and people might have thought you and I had texted about this offline. We have not yet about this, but I saw you posting on social media. I think you tagged me. Someone was asking you about Lola, your Bedlington, and, and you tagged me in a response. But were you at some sort of, like, national Bedlington Terrier <laughs> convention or something? And did my invitation get lost in the mail? Like, are you now, a be- like, a Bedlington dog mom celebrity and I'm just chopped liver over here? What's going on? Okay. We don't have a lot of time because I really – we could talk about the whole thing <laughs> on your program for a, an hour or two. Um, so Lola's... We, we just want people to stay tuned in, though, Janet. That's right. So, so we'll, we'll make it quick. Lola's breeder, Lori, um, she is head of the Bedlington of America group. So she hosts a group, and 
This past weekend was Meet the Breeds at the Javits Center, which is sponsored by the American Kennel Association, right? And so people Mm -hmm. can go and meet different breeds and see what breed might fit in with their family. And Lori had told us about this, and because it was in New York, she said, do you want to show Lola as an example of a wonderful Bedlington Terrier that people can uh, look at and, and see in person and pet her? And so my husband just loves, I mean, listen, this is a part of his personality that I never knew existed he loves talking about the bedlington terrier breed he has read up on it guy he knows everything he is an expert (laughs) so he really enjoyed being at this show with lola and her mom who came as well and so lola and her mom were reunited it was were they a hit oh my goodness well lola's mom is a showgirl okay lola is not but her mom is and so she has kind Hang of. Hang on, been... are you telling me her name is Lola? She's not a showgirl. She's not a showgirl. Yes, it doesn't go with the Barry Manilow theme. Um, Couldn't resist. Of course. So Lori stayed at our house. Uh, Lola's mom, um, Villanelle, stayed with us as well, and they were just inseparable. People have asked, does Lola know that it was her mom? I'm not sure, but they definitely had a connection. And you can tell there were moments where Lola's like, hi, play with me. Hi, play with me. And the mom was just like, you know, just put her in her place. So you could tell. I'm going to say yes. Okay. So it was amazing. I'm going to say yes. I actually should post the video of when they first, like, saw each other again. It's quite quite something. uh, Please text that to me right now. Okay. As soon as soon as we go to commercial break, please text that to me immediately. That is extremely important for me to see, and probably the country as well. But I'm so glad that that happened. The photos were adorable. I would imagine that they were very popular among people meeting the breeds. They were. People are, are starting, so cute, and yes. they're intrigued. They're like, "What? What on is earth that? is this half half lamb, half dog looking creature?" <laughs> well, listen. Next year, the invite is there. This was a very uh, it wasn't well planned, and had I thought of it, of course you would have been invited, and you could we could all stay at the same house. It'd be Roy, Villanelle, and Lola. Oh, my gosh. What a fun little brood there. Keep me posted next year, Janice. I will. Janice, stand by, because I want to completely change the topic, something totally different when we come back with our guest Janice Dean on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy Hour Guy Benson Show. Janice Dean, our friend, is with us. Okay, now, you made reference at the very beginning of this interview to my voice. You were concerned that I have a cold under the weather. I don't think so. Maybe I have allergies, but I'm feeling fine. But you just you sensed or heard a little something in my voice that caused you, as a mother, a concerned mother, to inquire. I'm sure my mother listening right now is very appreciative of that and was maybe thinking the same thing. And you said, after all, you're a radio person. And we've talked about this before in the past on this show when we've chatted with you. You spent a period of your career as an on-air DJ at a rock station in Canada. That's correct, right? Correct. Okay. With that information, I'm going to even call it expertise. I want to ask your opinion on something right up that alley. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has announced its 2023 nominees. And I don't really follow this type of thing terribly closely but my understanding is roughly half a dozen get in every year Mm -hmm. and here are the nominees i don't really know all of them like i'm going to do my best here some of them of course are super famous so i'll run through 
a number of these, and then I would like to get your expert opinion on who you think should make it. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. Kate Bush, Cheryl Crow, Missy Elliott, Iron Maiden, Joy Division slash New Order, Cindy Lauper, George Michael, Willie Nelson, Rage Against the Machine, Soundgarden, The Spinners, A Tribe Called Quest, The White Stripes, and Warren Zivon? Zivon. Warren Zivon. Okay. So that's the list of nominees. It seems like maybe about half of them will get in. A few of these names, I have to admit, I'm surprised aren't already in, Janice. Mm -hmm. But do you have any particular favorites among this group? Well, I feel like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame should be rock and roll. I I kind of think some of these are more poppy than rock and roll, but I don't know that there is an actual criteria. I mean, I guess if you have a rock guitar, but you're still playing pop or country, then maybe that qualifies you. So I don't know if I'm a good judge. I would say Sheryl Crow. I mean, yeah. I could see her up there. Iron Maiden, I can't believe they weren't on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame list already. Willie Nelson, I feel like, probably should have been on there before. I think Dolly yep. Parton uh, was recently nominated, too. And she took her out, herself out of it, by the way. She didn't think that she was rock and roll enough. Um, Soundgarden, I think, should definitely be on the list. The White Stripes. Rage Against the Machine? Yeah, I think so, too. And Warren Zevon, definitely. These are the types so of Warren Zevon, I had no idea who that was, except we have Werewolves a clip of one of – exactly. Cut 42. I know this one. Yeah. Yeah, so that – I'm pretty sure Kid Rock sampled that song he more did. recently. But that's a very famous one. George Michael, Cyndi Lauper, huge – Hits on their hands, right? They're both massively famous. George Michael with Faith. Cindy Lauper, of course, cut 40. They just want to. And here's the thing. We can all sing along to yes. that song. Is it rock and roll is your point? I don't think it is. And I love George Michael. I love him. Because you got to have faith, faith, faith. But I don't know that it's true rock and roll. You know what I mean? Well, let's listen. We can let listeners maybe determine. Plus, we all want to hear it anyway. Cut 41. I mean, that's definitely pop. And yeah. girls just want to have fun is pop. And I love pop. Me too. And there is guitar in that song in Faith. I, like I said, I don't quite know the criteria. Obviously now maybe they don't have any criteria. I'm not sure. Like Prince, for instance, he's poppy, but, man, he can play oh, that's a rock. guitar, right? Uh, yeah, like maybe one of the best guitarists ever, absolutely. right? Absolutely. On the people list. People would concede that. Yes, but I'm not – and I love Cyndi Lauper, good Queens girl – uh, I love that song. She was my very first concert I ever went to. It was Queens and Thompson Twins. Don't hold it against me. Uh, but <laughs> I don't even know what that is. What the Thompson Twins? Yeah, Never they were heard of good? that. Good. You know that song. Hold me now. Very poppy, sort of. Yeah, you know that oh, song. Oh, yep, yep. That song I know. Yeah. 
So. Even from those three notes, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> I will also make this point, Janice Dean, Kate Bush on the list. You have to think that she's on the list because of the huge renaissance right. and resurgence that she's having because it was it Stranger, Stranger Things. Stranger Things, yeah. Right, My- everyone suddenly loves that song, and she's like, yes, thank you very much. I'll take those royalties. Oh, a nomination, thank you, thank you. It's It's been quite a year. I mean, I... I don't know if she, she has maybe a, a what was the other song with Peter Gabriel? Don't give up. Uh, it was a, like a song, a love song in the '80s that was quite nice too. <laughs> uh, but I don't know that she's has had any. Uh, she was kind of obscure actually back when that song "Running Up That Road, Running Up That Hill." Running up that hill, yeah. Uh, that a seems like maybe yes, a stretch. Right. Yeah, Christine just told me about women's work too. A li- but you know what? Good for her. Go, girl. Yeah, a couple of hits, though, is that necessarily Hall of Fame worthy? These are things that can be debated. You're right. And it's the type of thing that Janice can talk about on her (laughs) rock radio show and her fabulous, unaffected, not sick at all radio voice, unlike me, apparently. Janice (laughs) Dean, senior meteorologist here at Fox News. We talk about books. We talk about dogs. We talk about music. We talk about everything, also the weather. Janice, always appreciate it. Have a great weekend. We'll talk soon. You too, my friend, and I'm glad you're feeling great. (laughs) Thank you. The Guy Benson Show continues next with the happy hour rolling on. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, Friday edition. Thanks for listening. In our first hour today, we welcome to the show for the very first time James Comer, Republican congressman from Kentucky. He's the House Oversight Committee chairman, a very busy man for these next two years at least. Here's part of that discussion with Chairman Comer. I want to start by playing a soundbite from earlier. President Biden was asked about inflation. Obviously, inflation remains painfully high, especially in certain categories for Americans, for consumers, for families. And he was asked if he takes any blame whatsoever. His answer was no, and he went further than that. Cut 25. Listen. Take any blame for inflation, Mr. President? Take any blame for inflation? No. Why not? Because it was already there when I got here, man. Remember what the economy was like when I got here? Jobs were hemorrhaging. Inflation was rising. We weren't manufacturing a damn thing here. We were in real economic difficulty. That's why I don't. Well, the major- not the majority, but close to 60 percent of jobs lost during the pandemic were already recovered by the time he took office. That was on the upswing, Congressman. Inflation was less than 2 percent when he took office and almost immediately started ticking up because of the policies that they immediately started implementing on the other side of the aisle. The Democrats spending $2 trillion right out of the gate, and they spent trillions more over the course of the, you know the next year plus. And even Democratic economists have pointed to these Biden Democratic policies as key drivers of inflation. Here's the president saying that he takes no responsibility whatsoever for the inflation because it already existed before he took office, which is just demonstrably false. But that's what he's telling the American people. Yeah, this president has a track record of not being honest with the American people. We have inflation for two reasons. The two punch from Joe Biden. First of all, these bad energy policies spiked energy prices right out of the gate, and then they just went on a spending spree. Uh, The last two massive, quote, stimulus bills that were passed by Joe Biden were not needed. Republicans warned they would lead to inflation, and here we are. We have inflation. We just had our first committee hearing this week, uh, and my 
new opportunity as chairman of the House Oversight Committee to try to start diving into all the wasted money in the, with the pandemic spending. And this administration never did anything to try to curtail that waste. They don't care about wasted tax dollars. All they care about is spending more tax dollars, and that's why we have inflation. In this new capacity that you mentioned, chairman of this important committee, a lot of Americans voted for accountability, for some balance. And when it's the party of the president doing the oversight, often the oversight is weak. And that's obviously changing now that you've got the gavel. But it also seems to me that it would be almost like the old phrase, drinking from a fire hose. There are so many things crying out for oversight and accountability. How do you sort of lay out a schedule of investigation, hearings, and inquiry where you can actually prioritize things, where you can hit on so many different subject matters because there's a lot that needs to be looked at and scrutinized. How do you go about that game plan to use your time and your resources wisely? Well, we had assumed this day would come. Uh, We actually started back in September planning ahead for Uh, February, when we got uh, started to have the full committee hearings, uh, I've been communicating with other committee chairs. There will be other committees that will have oversight-type hearings in in their committee rooms. I mean, we're two years behind in oversight because the Democrats did not have a single oversight hearing uh, pertaining to any type of wrongdoing or wrongful spending in the Biden administration. So we've got to go back two years plus stay current with the with the current needed oversight of this of this administration i mean every day you know you look at what's happening with our military look at looks what's happening with our foreign policy we have no idea what john Kerry's doing in china then you got all the scandals of the biden family that threatens our national security and then their bad energy policies the list goes on and on and on so we've got a lot of work to do in the house of representatives just in the name of oversight How are you planning to use your subpoena power? Because, you know, you can have subpoenas flying all over the place. It is a weapon that can be used broadly or more, you know, like a scalpel. I know that already a threat about subpoenas initiated a change in tune from DHS about upcoming hearings uh, and and an area of inquiry, which is the, the border crisis. Talk about the subpoena power that you have in this role and how you intend to use it or at least uh, threaten to use it and, and how you think that might sort of achieve some of the results that you're looking for? Well, we've got a subpoena strategy, and it's unfortunate that we're going to have to use subpoenas within this administration. I mean, theoretically, in the perfect world, subpoenas would only be used for people outside the government uh, because the government – Agencies and officials should always come in front of the oversight committee because that's what the committee was created to do. A type of oversight committee has been in existence since the days of Abraham Lincoln being in Congress. He was on what it would today be the oversight committee when he was in Congress. So you know, this is something that an administration supposed to do. They're supposed to send officials in front of the committee. Uh, we did have to threaten Mayorkas uh, with subpoenas for border Patrol chiefs, finally, they agreed to send them. That'll be hearing Tuesday. Wednesday, we have three witnesses coming, actually three majority witnesses that we called from the Republicans and one from the Democrats. Uh, They will all have received subpoenas. So I have issued the subpoena pen. I don't know that that's public yet, 
but our first four subpoenas I'm pretty confident are going to uh, be they'll be complied with and those people will be in attendance. My full interview with Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, House Republican from Kentucky, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, Start to Finish, for free every day on demand when the show is over. That includes Bonus Benson on the weekends. We always like to remind you of that as well. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, was this something that was charming and fun or the stuff of nightmares? We'll explain and debate after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Friday Vibes on the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. It's the home stretch. Thank you very much for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, free podcast every day. So this is a little bit of a controversy, a stupid one and a silly one, therefore perfect for this segment. A video went viral last week, I think when I first saw it. It is taken inside a commercial airplane, an airliner of some sort. And the caption on the tweet was this. We got stranded on our plane in Iceland for 10 hours due to high winds. Luckily, we had our instruments on the plane and decided to start a sing-along. So you've got all these people sitting on the plane in their seats. There's a few cabin crew, it looks like, toward the back galley of the plane. And then in the aisle, there's a girl with a guitar who's smiling and singing. Someone else has a violin. There's other people involved, it seems. And they are singing and performing a very famous song. Cut 36, here's a taste. Virginia! One more time. Wait, hang on. It just got a lot got a lot worse suddenly. Did we have a little sing-along there from the studio? Was that Cookie? That was me. It was fun. I had to join in. Dan did not want to hit my mic, and I said, please put my mic on. I want to show Guy this is fun. Okay. I was like, I remember this being annoying but not bad, and then it got annoying and bad. I'm like, wait, whose voice is that? Then I realized what was happening. Okay, now that we've cleared that up, The dispute that's playing out over this is whether or not this was cute and charming and adorable and sort of a heartwarming thing or a nightmare and like a personal hell for people where you're already stuck on a plane for hours and then some people take it upon themselves to break out their musical instruments and start performing and you're a captive audience with literally nowhere to go strapped in a seat. Some might consider this a form of like... Low-level torture? Others are saying, oh, they were pretty good. That's fun. They were passing the time. I think the 10-hour detail is pretty significant in this. And the part that I don't know is how many of the 10 hours were these people playing, potentially against other people's will? I think that's important. That's an important data point as we weigh this. My initial reaction was I'm a no on this. I, I feel like... You would need to get the permission of everyone on that flight to be down to listen to you sing and play for this to be kosher, and I'd be surprised if that happened. Because some people who are going to sing along or clap or smile, 
they're into it. What about other people who don't want to be there? They don't want to be in a concert. They didn't sign up for this. It's just maybe cynical. Maybe I'm being the cynical person here. I know Christine loves this. Christine would be like teary-eyed, smiling, sneaking back to the galley for extra mama's juice, and that's like, let's do another round, another well, not another round of drinking. That's just for her. She has to make sure that she's you know, hoarding hoarding that material for herself. Who knows how long they'll be stuck there. She's got to make sure mama's taken care of. But, like, another verse. Let's do it one more time, and then, you know, people are taking requests. I, I'm sort of making this up now. I'm just imagining how this played out and how it would play out with someone like Christine egging everything on and, like, taking a leadership role in imposing this punishment on a bunch of unwilling fellow passengers. So I'm a no on this. I understand the charm. I get maybe for, let's say you're on that plane stuck for 10 hours, if that's really what happened. If they did, I don't know, 20 minutes of sing-along just to pass a little bit of the time and give people some dopamine hits, I don't know. Like, that might be more acceptable. But where this happened in the arc of the 10 hours, how long it lasted, how into it truly everyone was or was not, these are important factors. So my overall inclination is I'm a lean no on this. And Christine is like a jump face first into it, yes, of course. So Christine, why is it that you find this to be absolutely delightful to the point that you want to like actively defend it on national radio? Because I think it's fun, and that's what we need. Everything is so heavy, especially in the news, Guy. And if I was on this plane, I would be back up to them. I'd be searching for a tambourine, but I don't know if planes usually keep them oh, around. God. I love a tambourine. Um, oh. I would knock on the pilot's door and be like, come on, bud. We're delayed. Come out here. Let's have a little fun. Uh, I think you probably shouldn't approach the cockpit door these days. Just- done it before. <laughs> I, yeah, not not like once the plane is out on the tarmac or on the runway, you know. I think when you're boarding, that's one thing. Once that door is closed, I think it stays closed for a reason. I think we don't have to get into that, but we don't want to create a, like a potential terrorism incident no, on no. top of this nightmare, this I said weather I w- nightmare. I said I would knock first. Yeah, I just think you want to stay away from the cockpit door, ma'am. The other thing is, oh, I'm, I'm picturing you with a cowbell. I'm getting a headache. The tambourine actually induced a headache especially if you're not really on beat necessarily it's just like get some advil to people on this plane immediately can you understand why it might be fun and light and enjoyable for let's say even a majority of the people on the plane but some people really find it cringeworthy and something that they don't want to have to put up with in an already unpleasant situation no, I can't. And you know what? Like, I would even be nice <laughs> enough to go around and pour everybody a shot. So, like, we do a shot. This is what happens at the block party when I get it going. Everybody on the in the, on the block, every single one. I'm looking at you, Grandma. Looking at you, Gramps. Everybody does a shot, and then we sing. It is actually children. I, guy, not the children. No. You said everybody gets a shot. I'm like, this sounds like another confession to a crime. <laughs> no. I mean, For Christine, um, it would it would not be the first. No, no, no children, no children drink. But um, Dan is over here rolling his eyes. He's a musician. I would think he would. He love is a musician. This. He he. Famously, at least for the purposes of this show and the last show he worked on, famously auditioned for American Idol. Like he's a musician. You play the guitar, if I'm not mistaken, correct? I do. Okay. 
perfect, perfect, perfect person to answer this question. So you're on a plane, stranded for hours. The natives are restless. People are unhappy. You've got your guitar with you. It's not down in the belly of the plane. You didn't check it. It's in the overhead bin. Are you reaching for that guitar to break it out and bring some happiness and joy into people's lives, or are you leaving people the hell alone? I am absolutely leaving people alone. You couldn't pay me enough to take my guitar out on a flight. I would not do that to other people. I get it why people like live music and all that, but some people just want to sleep and relax on a, on a flight. Like they pop their Ambien or Benadryl and they just want to like lay back and go and just sleep and conk out. I'm not doing it. I've had friends who have done it on an airplane. My friend Nick, who actually won American Idol the year before I was on, got paid to like do this partnered sponsorship and had to play with his band on a flight and do this exact same thing. And some people were not happy at all. Yeah. So that's the thing. It reminds me. All right. So quick story. This is not exactly the same, but it's a similar principle, I would say. The most awkward speaking engagement I have ever done in my life was for Americans for Prosperity years ago. And actually, I'm at an AFP event right now out here in California. Love them. But I spoke. It was in the 2014 election cycle. I spoke in North Carolina, and it was calling out then-Senator Kay Hagan for her Obamacare votes and some of her other votes. She was a Democrat, and she was defeated in 2014. But it was unclear whether that was going to happen or not, and it was the call-out K tour in North Carolina. So they had me coming and just doing some policy analysis and some political analysis at a breakfast event and then a lunch event and then a dinner event. It was an all-day thing, three different stops in North Carolina. The breakfast stop was in Asheville, a very beautiful little cute town, delightful place. And it was at a diner, this really good breakfast diner, and they had people sign up, and they probably had 30 or 40 people signed up for the AFP event, and my job was to talk to them about Kay Hagan and Obamacare and a few other policy issues. To my horror, when we arrived, I discovered that we did not have a private room. We had a giant table in the middle of the diner with a bunch of unsuspecting, unwilling people just trying to eat breakfast all around us. And I had to speak loudly enough so that everyone could hear me who had paid to be there, but then obviously loudly enough that everyone else at brunch or whatever had to hear me. And I did not want to, like, proselytize to people about politics when they're just trying to have breakfast. I would not want that to happen. So I actually opened my speech with an apology to everyone else in the entire restaurant and said that I would stay for, like, 20 minutes afterwards if they wanted to come and complain to me or argue with me or give a different point of view because I recognized it was obnoxious and I'm sorry that we didn't have a private room. So I did it, and it was just kind of awkward. I mean, obviously, I made the best of the circumstance. The rest of the day went very well. But I would not impose that on other people, just like you, Dan, would not impose your guitar music and singing, even if it's good, on people who are a captive audience. At least at a diner, you can, like, put down 20 bucks and walk out. On an airplane, you are absolutely stuck. You can't go anywhere. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You can't do it. it. Like, if you play at a bar, you know, you could just walk out and go to another bar. On a plane, you cannot go anywhere. Well, and people go to certain bars knowing that there's a live music component right. and they want live music. That is not something that you really sign up for on an airplane. So uh, Quiet Wyatt is monitoring the balloon and the war situation. So War Wyatt uh, has no opinion, he's let me know, on this particular subject. And therefore, he abstains courteously. It's a two-to-one vote. Christine loses. We're out of time. Back here on Monday for a brand new week of The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Bonus Benson over the weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. 
From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.